Brother BJ, I love you, brother. You're a man of passion. And I love it. You are a big godder. By that I mean you serve, you praise, you worship, you're mindful of a big God. And brother, it takes a big God to turn a cow man into a sheep man. <laughs> of such things, range wars are started. <laughs> Amen. Oh, man. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 20, if you would. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17, and I want to read down through verse 32. From Miletus, he, the apostle Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's bound prayer. Lord, as we come to this middle section of Paul's address to the elders of Ephesus, we turn to a more serious note, dealing with the responsibilities of church leadership and also of your servants, regardless of what role they have 
in your church, which you purchased, as the text says here, with your own blood. Father, help us to clearly understand what Paul is saying and how it applies to us today that we might serve you in a way that will be pleasing to you and bring glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as the message tonight is a little different in one way. And that is that when we get to this section, it really becomes a very specific address to those in leadership in the church who have the responsibility to care for the flock, to feed the flock, to protect the flock, to lead, to be overseers, to be shepherds, to be the elders who lead the people of God forward in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we talk about the leadership of the church, I think we use a false terminology, a misleading terminology. A brother brought that to my mind this morning because we sometimes use our words somewhat sloppily. For example, it's always irritated me that we talk about having systematic theology and practical theology. All theology is practical or it's not theology, right? So that division, that terminology just doesn't resonate well. When we talk about full-time ministry and we're referring to full-time ministers of the gospel, that also doesn't resonate well because it gives the impression that we have certain people that we pay to lead the church and that means the load is off of everyone and it leads to apathy, complacency, stagnancy. Because we're all, all of God's children are in full-time ministry. It's 24-7 living as the children of God for every one of us. And so sometimes you use that term full-time ministry in a way that is uh, misleading. And I want to remind you that even though we're talking tonight, especially about those who are the chief leaders in the congregation... Given that responsibility, um, there's also lessons every single one of us can learn, even if we are not an elder in the church. So listen well. The Ephesian elders could not take this exhortation back home to the church in Ephesus and succeed in doing what Paul exhorts them to do without the help of all of God's people in the assembly of believers at Ephesus. It's a message they all needed. Why? Because the assembly is charged with the responsibility of identifying leadership and being obedient to leadership, but also holding leadership accountable as we ought to each one hold every one of us accountable. So tonight we're addressing the aspect of the responsibilities of the leaders of the church. 
the responsibilities of the servants of God, meaning everyone. So as we begin this, the very first concept here that is directed by the Apostle Paul as he speaks comes there in verse 25, verses 25 and 26. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Accountability. Paul is saying here, I have not done anything to harm the church of God in the assembly at Ephesus. Why does he even say that? Because he's aware that he is accountable to the believers in Ephesus. He's aware that he's accountable to these elders who have gathered before him. And he is giving them the opportunity to disagree with that if such a thing had occurred. And he's saying it because he's saying, in effect, I am accountable and you likewise are accountable. Can you with me, he's saying, testify that you are innocent you are innocent of the blood of all men. That's terminology. It comes right out of the book of Ezekiel. It comes out of other passages of the Word of God, and it has reference here to the fact that the ministry of the gospel has a sense of urgency. We preach the gospel as though lives depend upon it because lives do depend upon it. Have we proven to be faithful? Have we had a, a deep resonating concern for people to be saved, for people to come to Christ, to serve Christ wholeheartedly with total commitment? Have we been lax about snatching the brands from the fire? That, as I read this, I can't help but think of Samuel at the end of his ministry in the Old Testament basically saying the same thing. We'll talk more about that tomorrow night when we come to the end of this address of Paul and it'll arise again, the same type of thing. This is not the first time that Paul is going to say, in essence, I am accountable and I testify before you that as far as I know, I have been faithful in everything in your midst and before you and I call upon God to witness that and I open myself to correction, to admonition. He's saying here he believes that the word of God has been given. It is profitable. He's already said there in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Literally that which you can take away with you. It's not the same word for profitable that is used in Timothy where you have there the word of the, the scriptures, all scriptures are inspired or and train me in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. He's putting that to work in his life. To, to him, see, the theology of what the Bible is 
comes into his life and demands an accountability. He has a responsibility to be accountable. If a man in leadership in the church, especially in that upper level of leadership, of the roles of pastor and elder, the teachers, if there is a lack of integrity, it will tarnish the gospel, it will destroy the witness of the assembly, and it will divide the assembly, and it will create problems. It's very important when we consider a person to place in that kind of leadership role that each and every one of us take that seriously, prayerfully, urgently, that we thoroughly vet those whom we place into such realms of service. One of the greatest sorrows of my ministry has been to serve when you have men as elders in the church who prove to be unqualified and should never have been chosen to begin with. Our elder board has prayed about that. Our elder board has wept over it. Our elder board has suffered from men who should not have been on there. And one of the things we've determined, especially under our current pastor, who has been so good about, first of all, helping us to resolve the issues and problems of the past and to seek reconciliation that uncovered these things. Now, there were other ways that that was uncovered, too, that there were unqualified elders serving on our elder board. But he was very useful as we went through that process of reconciliation with those who had found fault with the church and found fault with the elder board and even elders who had left the church. As we sat with them and sought reconciliation, it was amazing to have some of them say, I'm sorry. I am sorry. I should not have accepted the role of an elder. I am not and was not qualified. One man said, did you wonder why I sat there so quietly in every elder meeting? I was watching the clock. I could hardly wait to get out of there. I should not have been an elder. I'm sorry. I contributed to the problem. I contributed to this dysfunctionality of the elder board, which led to a major rift in the church. He wept. And we wept with him. We said, why didn't we see that? Why didn't we vet more carefully? Why didn't, remember we said the other night, we have to have relationships, deep relationships, close relationships. We need to know one another, care for one another. And we have to be very careful about whom we choose for leadership. Trust me, the consequences are catastrophic. That's why Paul is opening in this fashion. He's got to that point, and it's so amazing because the rest of Scripture basically tells us what went on in Ephesus. And it's amazing that we have this little letter to the church at Ephesus back in the book of Revelation that talks about how their love has grown cold. And we read about the disciplining of leadership by name, like Hymenaeus and Alexander at Ephesus in the epistles to Timothy. 
what Paul is saying here came true. It's important. It's significant. We have to pay attention to it. It's upon. It's a burden that every single member of this assembly and of each individual assembly represented here, no matter where you're located, to take this process seriously. I find something fascinating here in verse 25. He says he was preaching the kingdom. Did you ever stop to think about that? He's still preaching the kingdom at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28. He's in Rome. He's in chains. He's in prison under house arrest. And in verse 23 of chapter 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts, we're told that Paul was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. And the last verse of the book of Acts, verse 31 of chapter 28, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And if you turn all the way back to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you look at chapter 11, it becomes very clear what kingdom is being talked about and why he's still preaching about its coming because it hasn't come yet even at the end of Paul's life. Jesus said in Luke 19, in answer to those who said, when will the kingdom come? He says, when I return, I'll bring it with me. So in, Luke, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And in verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. It's not yet come, but it must be preached. Why? Because the kingdom of Jesus Christ, when he returns and establishes his thousand-year reign upon the earth, demonstrates, number one, he is worthy of being the son of man, representing the seed of Adam, all of us. And he is the one who can establish perfection upon the earth. And it's going to prove that every excuse that mankind has offered, that any sinner has offered to say, oh, I, I don't need that gospel you preach to me. I don't need that Jesus. If God were really God and if Jesus really accomplished what you said he did, this world would be a better world. I wouldn't have been abused as a child by my father. I wouldn't have suffered loss when the thief broke into the home. I would not have a mother die of cancer. I would not have a brother rebel and die as a drug addict. This world would not be rent with wars, and there would not be severe poverty and disease and genocide in this world of ours if God was truly a God you say he is and Jesus Christ came to save us. That is an excuse. And Jesus is going to set up his kingdom in order to prove that that's an excuse. He's going to give us a perfect world, reigned over by him, 
not by Donald Trump, not by uh, Angela Merkel, not by any other leader of any other stature of any other nation or even the leader of the United Nations. It'll be Jesus himself, and there will be righteousness. There will be perfect law. There will be the exact justice that must be meted out and the a great amount of mercy, and they will erase all poverty and erase the illnesses, and everything will be perfect. We will live in a world that is absolutely perfect under the direct control of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The lion will be able to lie down with the lamb. The child will be able to play with a death adder crawling out of its hole. Wars will be ended. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. Artillery guns will be beaten into tools of agriculture rather than weapons of destruction. And yet, at the end of that thousand years, those who have been born in such a perfect kingdom and under the age of 100, according to Isaiah, will rebel against Christ, proving that that excuse that is so often offered is a hollow excuse because no matter how perfect the world is, no matter how perfect the Savior is, no matter what all God has done, the rebellious heart of sinful fallen man refuses to believe and will be bent on rebellion. That's why Paul preached the kingdom. Because by preaching the kingdom, you cannot ignore the doctrine of depravity and sinfulness and rebellion against God. By preaching the kingdom, you find that the only answer to the ailments of mankind and to the fallen nature of this world is in Jesus Christ alone. There's much more we could say here, but I'll leave it right there. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I've preached that kingdom faithfully. I've preached about Jesus Christ. I've preached about who he is. I've preached about why he came. I've preached about how God in the very beginning in creating man and woman appointed them to rule over this earth to be vice regents of God. The kingdom program of God begins at creation. The redemption program of God begins immediately upon the fall. And there's so much to see there. But let's move on to the second thing that occurs here in verse 27. Because as we come to verse 27, we see here that uh, there is, is to be a teaching and preaching of the whole counsel of God. Notice what Paul says, for I did not shrink. That's the same word, I did not shrink out of fear that we have in verse 20. He's used that twice. I love it that my brother who is big and strong and passionate, a man's man, can stand here and admit fear. And Paul is reminding us that when we shrink out of timidity, out of fear, we're not acting the way we ought to act as the servants of God. He says, I did not shrink. 
from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The King James has there the whole counsel of God. What is the whole purpose of God or what is the whole counsel of God? It's the whole will of God. What does it involve? In your notes, you'll have a list there, bullet points of some of these things. And by the way, the notes tonight, you'll find there, there are a number of pages of notes, and there's a lot of quotes I put in boxes and things like that. I'm not going to be reading those. I put those there that you might have them to refer to that might help reinforce the things we talk about. And these points are preaching judgment as well as salvation, rebuking sin as well as encouraging holiness, teaching difficult texts as well as easy texts. Preaching both Old Testament and New Testament, causing sorrow as well as joy, covering past, present, and future for the believer and for the church, teaching about the life of the church as a whole as well as about the individual believer's life. That's the whole counsel of God. That's the whole purpose of God. That's the whole will of God. That is a heavy responsibility. And no man can accomplish that the way Paul did. I, I'm amazed. He did it in three years at Ephesus. What in the world takes us so long? Well, number one, just before this, we find out. Well, I mean, when Paul said to BJ, hey, you got to Wednesday morning. I thought, oh boy, is there a Uticus sitting in the window? If it goes to midnight, someone's going to fall asleep and fall out the window like Eutychus, and they're going to need to be raised from the dead. You see, Paul was fearless. He didn't care what men thought. He stood up there, and he preached until midnight, and they stayed. You go outside the United States to other parts of the world to teach and to preach the Word of God, and you find there's a totally different type of atmosphere. You find people that if you quit after 40 minutes of preaching, they're sitting there saying, what did we do wrong? Why isn't he still preaching? What's going on here? We came to hear the Word. We want to be taught. What's he doing stopping? You can go for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours without stopping barely taking a break, and if you take a break, I can remember preaching in Siberia and teaching in Siberia here just a year and a half or two ago, and as I was with these students, 30 students, pastors who traveled from the far regions of Siberia and from the peninsulas far out, they're closer to Alaska than they were to Novosibirsk, and here they came. They took trains going several days and nights to get there. And I was teaching the book of Job, and they did not want us to stop. I kept stopping for a break and saying, you need a break. I need a break. Something, you know. And, and, and they're saying, why are you stopping? Keep going. We want to hear more. There's a hunger for the word. And, and I think that the apostle Paul was preaching the same type of people. And it wasn't that they were bored. I mean, Eutychus probably fell asleep not out of boredom, but just out of exhaustion. And it's, it's one of those amazing things that this passion, what Paul did preaching, notice here, he said, I taught day and night. Earlier said from house to house and publicly. He did it over and over. He established a school in the school of Tyrannus to train preachers to go out to the seven churches of Asia with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that ancient postal circuit of delivering the mail 
in the Roman Empire in the midst of Turkey. And he sent men out trained to plant churches there. And those the seven churches that John addressed, that Jesus Christ addresses through the Apostle John in Revelation 2 and 3. Those seven churches were the result of Paul's ministry and Paul's preparation of preacher boys to go out there and preach the Word of God. And we talked earlier, Clayton said, one year and we can do this for you. We can do it. That's the same type of vision, the same type of passion, the same type of urgency, the same type of purpose that Paul applied while he was at Ephesus. And he didn't wait three years. It wasn't a three-year program for those boys to go out. I imagine he had several months, maybe a year at the most with them before he sent them out. And he's preparing leadership in the church at Ephesus the same way. Our leadership emphasis in our church, we, we uh, have brought our men in you know, who are either potential leaders in the church, potential teachers or deacons or future elders. We brought them in, and every other Tuesday night, we would meet for three hours, and we would go through uh, theology. We would go through an a understanding, an outline of the Bible and what the individual books were about. And we'd also talk about practical forms of ministry, pastoral ministry. And uh, it was amazing because we started with 25, and before we got through the two years of planned instruction, we were down to about eight. Well, that was good for us because we found out who wasn't committed. We found out who were not really ready for leadership. And we've talked about, maybe we need to have a more intense program. Maybe we need to meet every night of the week for maybe a month and put it all in a short compass and keep it intense, keep it focused. That'd be more like the Apostle Paul, I think. That's a lot to cover. But if you do it, the rewards are great. The rewards are great. So there was the teaching and preaching of the whole counsel of God, not just the concept of accountability. As we go further in this, the next thing we see is that in verse 26, verse 8, uh, the 26, the, the first part, no, excuse me, not 26, 28. In 28, the first part, he says, be on guard for yourselves. Why is that necessary? If we don't take care of ourselves and our spiritual life, we cannot lead others and help them in their spiritual life. If you're here tonight and you say, I want to be used by Christ in this church. I want to be used by Christ in this community. I want to be used by Christ to glorify Him. How do I do that? You must begin, each and every one of you, you must begin by taking care of guarding yourself. Guard your hearts with the Word hiding the word in your heart that you might not sin against God. Be in the word. Bathe in the word every day. Allow the word of God to wash you. 
to correct you. And when you look into the mirror of the word of God, as James says, we're tempted to go away and forget what we've seen in that mirror about ourselves. We cannot do that. We must pay heed to that. When our sin is exposed in the word, we must do something about it. We must be in prayer. We must be men and women of prayer. We must be men and women who are seeking to display in our lives the character of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is nothing more than the character of Jesus Christ. It's to be Christ-like. It is to follow in his footsteps. It is to seek to have others see Christ in us. As Peter says, we are to live lives in such a way that others see and ask us a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's guarding ourselves. Understanding where our weaknesses are. Getting men and women of like faith around us to act as accountability partners. An isolated believer is an endangered believer. An isolated believer is an easy target by Satan, by false teachers, because we need the assembly. We must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of so many is. We need one another to stimulate one another to love and to good works. We need the small groups. We need the times of corporate prayer. We need the times of corporate worship. We need the times of sharing the burdens. We need to exercise all the one another's. And that's how we guard ourselves. And the next part is not just guarding oneself, but shepherding God's church. Now, shepherding here has the idea, yes, there is one who is shepherd. And one of the quotes I've given you there talks about how a shepherd metaphor of describing what a leader of the church is is really an impartial, incomplete picture. It doesn't cover everything. That's why you have the term overseer. That's why you have the uh, term elder being used also of those in leadership. What's the lesson I've learned in 52 years about being a shepherd? The shepherd of the flock of Jesus Christ is himself a sheep. Stop to think about that. A shepherd who does not smell like the sheep is not a shepherd. A shepherd who cannot admit that he too is a sheep, tending to go astray, that he is a sheep in need of healing, that he is a sheep that is weak and susceptible to disease, to attack, is a shepherd that can't shepherd. A shepherd must understand the sheep. And in the church of Jesus Christ, it means that he must realize that he too is a sheep. That he was the lost sheep that was sought by the great shepherd, saved by the great shepherd, cared for and carried by the great shepherd, 
nurtured by the great shepherd and that he is only an under-shepherd and he's just a bellwether sheep. If you've worked with sheep, you know what a bellwether is. Sheep are stubborn, stupid animals. See, brother, that's why it's hard for a cowman to become a sheep man. At Casper Junior College, when I took farm structures, my final project, I decided that since I was a Christian, since I knew about sheep, since I knew about shepherds and the Word of God, that I would just go about designing a uh, sheep operation in northern Arizona as my project, which meant I had to figure out all the equipment, all of the buildings, how much land was needed to take care of the sheep, all the things you do in being a sheep man. And I had been on the livestock judging team, and I had judged sheep. And I, I just, I loved judging cattle and horses. I hated judging sheep. They smelled. They felt oily. You had to learn that they were easily diseased. You had to learn that uh, if you have a Wyoming blizzard blow up, you can find your sheep piled up against the barbed wire fence in the back pasture. The cows will come home. The sheep just run before the storm until they just pile up and die in a frozen heap in the snow. And I thought, man, and God says, I'm a sheep. And yet he loved me. And he cared for me. He carried me in his arms, a stinking sheep, liable to every type of disease, stupid and everything else. And then... I decide, well, if I'm going to be around sheep and I'm going to plan this thing, I'm going to have to experience sheep shearing, which has a certain amount of romance to it. But I'll tell you, talk about hot, smelly work. I'd much rather drive cattle. Even if that bull, as I did one day, driving a bull from one pasture to another, and we actually tore down part of the fence because he refused to go over the fence. We tore down part of the fence and started driving him toward the hole in the fence. And instead of going through the hole, he went over the fence up, up the line. I'd rather have that than those sheep. And when, when I got to butchering sheep, I'd butchered cattle. And I, I, I found nothing offensive about butchering cattle. But when I butchered a sheep, oh, man, my stomach turned. They stink. It smells. You know, I, I just, it was hard for me. And again, I was struck with the fact, I am a sheep. A shepherd who cannot realize that cannot be a shepherd after the model of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must smell like the sheep. We must recognize that we are sheep. That takes humility. It takes patience. It takes understanding. It takes compassion, but it must because we have to shepherd the sheep. We have to lead them. We have to be the bellwether, the bellwether, excuse me, the bellwether sheep that will lead the sheep up the ramp into the truck to transport them to another pasture or lead them over to the trough where they're going to be dosed for the potential diseases and the worms and the parasites that can attack them. We're sheep. Shepherd the flock. Because you're to guard not only yourselves, but all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 
The church belongs to God, not to the leaders. If we can get that picture right, every one of us, not just your leaders of the church, not just Pastor Paul, not just Pastor BJ, not just Pastor Dave, not just pa whoever you are and you're here and you're serving as pastors or even as elders, lay elders here in the church or as deacons, listen, the church you serve in is not your church. It is God's church. It's his flock. It's the flock of Jesus Christ. And so when it comes down to where we as a leader are causing the division and destruction of the flock of God, we must remember it's not our flock. Too many men of God not being sheep but being false shepherds coming in to steal the sheep have destroyed churches. This is my church. You'll do things the way I say, the way I think. And if you disagree with that, leave. That's not shepherding. We didn't purchase the sheep. We're one of the purchased. And as a member of that family of purchased, redeemed souls, redeemed sheep, We've got to realize we belong to God. This is His church, not ours. Having that attitude will solve a whole host of problems that arise in churches. When each and every one of us realize that, and don't then seek to have our way, to have our preferences met, whether it's in music or the color of the carpet or the shape of the windows or the degree the thermostat is set at or what songs we sing or which version of the Bible we utilize in the pulpit or in Bible studies or what form the ministry takes instead of going with our preferences, we need to realize it's God's church. And therefore, it's not my preferences that take priority. And we've got to learn that the sheep around us have the same problems we do. And we must live for one another. It was mentioned, I believe, uh, this morning in Philippians chapter 2 about Christ emptying himself. And we're being told there that we are to care for others. We are to consider others better than ourselves. We are to consider others more needy than ourselves. We are to consider others before ourselves. Joy is Jesus first, others second, and yourself last, J-O-Y. That's the biblical way. That's the Philippian way. And Paul goes on in that same chapter too. We get so focused on that beautiful passage about our Savior that we forget that it's given as example to us. And in the last part of that chapter, Paul reminds the Philippians of two men who modeled that and who counted their own lives as nothing to serve the church at Philippi 
even in the midst of illness and even unto illness and exhaustion because it was not important what they wanted or what they needed or their comfort or their success. It had to do with others. And they had a sincere love for the flock of God at Philippi. May God make each one of us like them. Let's move further here. We have two more points to cover, and then we're going to stop. As you go down further, there's a warning about the enemies that are outside and inside the church in verses 29 through 31. I know, Paul says. <laughs> he's repeated this many times. He said, you yourselves know twice, and he's going to say, I know at least twice. He set it up in verse 25. Now he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Everyone thinks of enemies from outside there, and that's true. There are those who come from outside the church who will destroy the church, who seek to destroy the church. And from among your own selves, he's speaking to the elders. Every board of elders ought to be aware that they might have a Judas in their midst. Among the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ was a Judas. The only difference between us and our elder boards and leaders of the church and Jesus Christ is he knew what he was doing in choosing Judas, and there was a specific purpose to it in order to fulfill the design of what he came to do to die for our sins. And it required a Judas to betray him. Jesus knew that well. He was not surprised or shocked. It was not saying, oh, whoops, I chose a disciple who doesn't really match. I've got to move to plan B. No, plan A is still in force. He is in perfect control. But we aren't. And when a Judas arises on the elder board or a Judas arises in the church among the flock, it's those who are among your own selves who will arise speaking perverse, twisted things. to draw away the disciples after them. If you know the history of this church, you know that it's been through splits, it's been through divisions. It's been through such attacks and through such examples. And you need to praise God that in spite of that, God has preserved an assembly of believers and has brought church leadership here who truly care for the flock and are not going to do such things and seeks to choose men in leadership and teachers in the classrooms and leaders in women's ministry, leaders in children's ministries who are not going to do such a thing. And the idea here, Paul spends much time on it here in this speech, is that we need to be alert to the fact that this can happen. And therefore, we all need to be praying that we have the wisdom to discern and that God allows us to see and to deal with problems before they get bad. They will arise and speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Stay awake be watchful. Be watchmen and watchwomen in the house of God, in the flock of God, in that church which Jesus Christ has purchased by his own blood. 
Remembering that night and day, Paul says, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you, to warn you, each one with tears. That's how serious this is. When we had serious problems in our church, believe me, there were tears. I wept over a departing pastor. I wept over a dear friend who stepped down from being chairman of the elder board. I wept over wolves in the midst of the flock. I wept over those among us on the elder board who led to the destruction of a church of 1,100 people that dwindled quickly down to 600, then to 400, then to 200. I wept over my own mistakes as a lay elder. I wept and agonized over elders that I needed to admonish, elders that we as a church had to ask to leave the eldership. These were men who had been close, good friends. Those were hard times. I wanted to run. I wanted to leave like some of them. The burden was more than I could carry. It had to be God carrying it. I had to have godly men around me to help us try to restore. And thank God in the process of finding a new pastor, he gave us a man of God who had a great deal of wisdom, spiritual fortitude, I had to phone him and say, we have an elder that's committed adultery before he had even responded to our asking him to candidate, to be our candidate for pastor. Fearing that when he heard that, he'd understand exactly how dysfunctional our elder board had been and that he would not come. Thank God he came in spite of all. He even came out ahead of his starting as our pastor to help us deal with the issue. And then when he came, he helped us in the process of reconciliation. I cannot tell you what an answer to prayer that was and still is to this day. You're going to have times like that in the church. You're going to have times where the wolves have succeeded in snatching away members of the flock. You'll have times when those within the church who were trusted will lead away part of the flock. There'll be times of tears and admonishing with tears and weeping. And there'll be times of humility when you have to go before the believers in the assembly and say, I'm sorry. That was a mistake. That was wrong. We did not bring this back to you and share it with you. 
in a timely fashion. We failed to communicate well. Those are times that try men's souls. Those are times when men in leadership have wives at home immersed in prayer and shedding their own tears because they know the burden their husbands are carrying. And I want you to know that there are men like that in this church that when they face those hard times are not going to cut and run because they love you. They want to shepherd you. They smell like sheep. They are sheep. They are transparent. They're open. They communicate. A man who stands in the pulpit and preaches the word has to admit at times that a passage is confusing to him too. Or that he faces a certain issue in his life. Now, if that happens too much, you begin to wonder, should he really be there doing it? But if it never happens, you probably have a man who is too proud, too arrogant to be a proper shepherd. He doesn't really smell like the sheep. When you can feel like your pastor and your elders go through some of the same struggles you do and really, truly understand what you face, you will find that you accept their leadership and you praise God that he's given you such leadership. They'll weep with you. They'll rejoice with you. They'll suffer with you. They'll hold your hand. They'll sit beside you in the hospital room when you want nothing but silence and they will sit there and be with you in the suffering and pray and be present and you will grow to love such leadership. That's what Paul is asking these elders to be. And here's how he hopes that it will be accomplished. The last point. This is the work, really, of a church planter. This is the work of a missionary. Go, plant the church, build the church, get the leadership, get it going, and then turn it over to God-ordained leadership and commend them into the hands of God and go elsewhere and do the same thing again. God calls some men, God leads some men to stay long periods of time in the same church. And that is part of God's design. But he also has some that he has designed to go out and plant churches and to get them going and then to leave them in the hands of God, trusting God will keep it going. That's what Paul did on these missionary journeys. That's what I've exhorted many of our missionaries to do around the world. You're here. You're not a national. You're not born in their culture. You don't, you're not born with their language. You are unnatural in a setting that you're in, and you're here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and build up national leadership and then leave them in the hands of God and go on and do the same thing somewhere else. If you stay too long, they'll become overly dependent upon you. They'll always think they have to have a foreign pastor, an English-speaking pastor. They'll look at it as a matter of prestige, and the people themselves will not raise up leadership among themselves because they'll always look to the missionary. And there's a time when a missionary must leave. 
an elderly woman, a faithful missionary, she and her husband, Sophie Janista in the Philippines, years ago in 1997, went to the Philippines, she told me, she said, when my husband and I had planted a church in the Philippines, we began to realize that we were a hindrance to the church because the young men we had trained to come up and to take leadership in the church kept coming to us and saying, what do I do? How do I do it? And they were overly dependent. She said, we prayed and we decided we'd go to New Zealand for five years and come back to the Philippines later so we could work as partners under the nationals and have Filipino pastors pastoring those churches who felt free to lead and to do the things they ought to do because they were sheep like the sheep they shepherded. That's God's design. That's God's plan. Here's how you do it. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able. God's able. When the missionaries were driven out of China in 1945, the reluctant exodus is the name of a book about that. The Chinese church flourished and became one of the largest groups of born-again believers on planet Earth because the missionaries had properly trained nationals to do the work. And when they left, the nationals stepped in and seamlessly took over and performed the work of God and the block of God. But there's also the story of how some missions and some missionaries had not trained leadership, did not have any Timothys. And those congregations languished and died. God's able to do it by His Word, by His Spirit, is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Wow. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I come under deep conviction. It makes me realize that it's God who does the work. It's His church. And if you and I try to do the work ourselves in the flesh, in our wisdom, our knowledge, our methodology, our thinking, we're headed for failure. And we have to realize that we're not the ultimate keepers of the church. We're not the ultimate uh, guardians of the church. We're not the ultimate nourishers of the church. It is Jesus Christ Himself. And there comes a time when a man, a woman, regardless whether they're a Sunday school teacher or leading a women's ministry or whether they're a lay elder or whether they're a pastor or whether they're a deacon, need to get on their knees before God and say, Lord, don't let me mess this up. I commend this little flock of mine into your hands knowing that you're able to do things. Please use me. I'm a sheep like them and I need the same enablement. I need to know that you will do this. Keep me in your word and keep me faithful to your word. If we can do that, we'll finish well as Paul did. That's bound prayer. Lord, there are times when words fail us when experience overwhelms our hearts and minds, 
when we have to stand before you admit that sometimes we get in the way of your work because we become greedy, selfish, grasp and hold on to human authority, forget that the church is yours. You purchased it, not we. Give us those tears that are needed when we truly care for the lives of those among whom we serve our Savior, among whom we wish to continue to exercise the one another's that we've been instructed to perform and to carry out. Make us your humble servants. Give us your wisdom. Give us your strength. Give us your love and compassion. Lead us as our shepherd. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.